The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves and desol- to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boats to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to go down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of, and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. When I was younger, the church that I grew up in organized a missions trip to Kenya, and I think I was probably uh, 17 years old. I remember us doing some fundraising for this trip, and uh, probably about 20 of us got onto a flight. We flew from Fredericton, New Brunswick, down to Newark, and then uh, from Newark all the way over to uh, Ethiopia and then to Nairobi. And uh, it was an incredible, incredible time. We uh, spent some time in the Great Rift Valley in Kenya. We built uh, a house for a local farmer uh, in the kind of right on the very floor of the Great Rift Valley. We also did some work in a school that was uh, over there. It was it was just a, an amazing time with some friends from back home, but also just experiencing a different culture and and going and serving. I, I kind of went on the trip thinking that oh here I go I'm going to go and help these people in Africa and I'm going to come and serve and work and do all these things for them. Definitely came back from the trip as many people do who go on missions trips like that, very much feeling served and blessed myself. I actually thought, I've not contributed much to them, and they contributed a world to me, some things that I learned that have stuck with me to this day. But when I got back to Fredericton, where I grew up, I was, like, I was on fire. I was, I was a young Christian guy. I had just been on this big missions trip, and I was like, I, I had graduated to another league of Christianity. I was expecting my plaque from Jesus any day in the mail saying, you have achieved this super kind of spiritual superiority now, because I had clocked a few things while I was over there, and I was all excited, and I wanted to tell my friends about the trip and tell them about Jesus, and there was this fire that was inside of me, this passion that was inside of me, but as time went on, as I got back into the rhythm of life and my normal surroundings and, and all of the things that I used to get up to, that fire, that passion, kind of got drowned out by competing passions, by other things that kind of took that space. And I found myself, after not too long, being back spiritually or emotionally as well in the exact same place that I was 
before I left. In Mark chapter 6, we see something actually quite similar that is happening with the disciples. A little bit earlier in Mark, we see that Jesus kind of sends his disciples out in, in his name and his power and his authority to go out to the surrounding area. And he sends them out two by two, and they're going out healing people and preaching and casting out demons, doing all of these things. And then they come back, and they're exhausted from this trip. I mean, it's tiring. They're out going on foot, covering uh, covering ground and, and doing exhausting ministry, but they also come back with a fire inside of them because they're sharing these stories of all these things that, the, that were happening. They were going out and casting out demons and healing people, and this was incredible because they had seen Jesus do this before. They had seen that themselves, but for the first time, Jesus had sent them to go and do it, and because they were doing it in his name, they were much more involved in it. This was a different thing. And they come back, and they've kind of got this fire inside of them. But Jesus knows that they're actually exhausted. Jesus knows that they're very, very tired from this. So he says, look, you're you're tired. Let's get in the boat. Let's go across the lake to a desolate place just so we can get some downtime, just so that you can rest. And as they're getting in the boat, some people see them getting in this boat to head off on their way for some rest. And word about Jesus was spreading all around the area. And people wanted to be around Jesus. So this great crowd, or they're watching this boat as it's going across the lake. And this crowd decides to run around the lake, probably picking up people into the crowd, kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill as they're going around the lake. And eventually there are thousands of people waiting for when Jesus and the disciples are going to come ashore. This is called, the story that we've read this morning is often referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. It's actually 5,000 men that are recorded. It would more accurately be called the feeding of 10,000 or so. There were way more than 5,000 people who had gathered by the time this boat came ashore. And remember, Jesus is exhausted. He not long before, I mean, the, the pace of ministry that Jesus kept would have been tiring for him, but he had also recently heard about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. That only happened just a little bit earlier. That would have been emotionally just exhausting for him to hear about that, tragic for him to hear that news. He would have been tired himself and the disciples as well. But when Jesus sees this great crowd, he has compassion on them. He's moved to compassion. And we read in Mark's gospel that he's moved to compassion because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He recognizes that this crowd, this great crowd, these thousands of people are desperate to be led. They are desperate to be led. And friends, there's something in each of us as people that cries out to be led. And what we follow, the very thing that we choose to lead us, what we follow, we worship. What we follow, we worship. And in our city, that can look like any number of things. It can look like people. It can look like people that we look up to in the city. Maybe a family member, maybe a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something like that. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a political figure. Maybe it's a sporting figure. But maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's an institution. Maybe it's government. Maybe it's a charity. Maybe it's uh, another organization that you have placed your faith in. Maybe it's a possession itself. We've talked a little bit this morning about money. Maybe your faith is in money. Maybe the choices that you make, that we make, are to, to follow money, and we effectively worship money that way. We believe that it will provide for us. Or maybe it's qualification or achievement. These would be things that many in our city would pursue with everything that they have. 
See, we're built that way, aren't we? We're built to worship. Every single one of us in this room is a worshiper. And you might be here this morning thinking, well, I don't, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm just, I'm just kind of here checking this out this morning. You are still a worshiper. Every single one of us worships something. It's the way that we have been built. It's the way that we are designed. But sin has come into the world, has come into us, and has corrupted the way that God designed us to be, which was to be worshipers of him first. And it's not that all these other things that I've mentioned are bad things. They're not necessarily bad things. But when we make them God things, they are just lousy gods. A few weeks ago when Andrew Lee was preaching, he talked about this. If you put your faith in a relationship and you elevate a person up to be like God and you consider your entire identity kind of revolving around that person and and you're trusting in them for all of your provision and all of your emotional provision and all of these things... Well, when they let you down, you really shouldn't be surprised because there's no way, Andrew was saying, that they could ever live up to that standard anyway. And he's exactly right. But we worship these things, and so often they end up letting us down because we treat them like gods, and they were never meant to be gods. And they fall far short of the one true God. So what we follow, we do worship I mentioned qualification briefly. That's big in our city. I have a master's degree myself. It's why I moved to the UK a number of years ago. So I've got this piece of paper. Still don't have it framed yet. I need to actually get on and do that. But I've got this piece of paper that says I have a master's degree from the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. But that qualification, does that provide for me? And you might think, well, no, it it, it can lead to work for you. And and then money, money. Money provides for you that way. And I would actually ask the question, well, does it does it really? Is money or is qualification, is your master's degree, your PhD, or BA, or, or whatever qualification it might be? I don't just mean academic. Does it actually actively provide for you? My master's degree has never walked to Shopper's Drug Mart when I've been sick and bought me drugs that I've needed. It's never done that. It's uh, simply unrealistic for me to expect that it would do it. I still have to be active. The money that I have has never gone and tried to mend a relationship independent of me. Maybe I've used money to take somebody out for coffee and say, hey, look, I'm really sorry for that thing I've said. But money hasn't just gone and done that independent of me. I'm still the one that has to be active. But we put our trust in these things, and we we expect that if I just have this thing, then all of these other things in my life will get sorted. And we elevate these things into a position that they just can't live up to. We need to choose what we follow wisely. We need to choose our leaders wisely. The American author Octavia Butler said it like this. She said, choose your leaders with wisdom and with forethought. To be led by a coward is to be controlled by all that the coward fears. To be led by a fool is to be led by the opportunist who control the fool. To be led by a thief is to offer up your most precious treasures to be stolen. To be led by a liar is to be asked to be told lies, is to ask to be told lies. And this one is particularly poignant. To be led by a tyrant is to sell yourself and those that you love into slavery. When we pursue these different things that are not the one true God, we often don't just end up disappointed. We actually end up enslaved by them. We end up pointing all of our resource, all of our time, everything that we have towards these things, and they actually end up ruling over us and controlling us. Around this room, we would have different stories of this, wouldn't we? 
There are some in this room that are to this very day living under a comment that was said to them years ago, something harsh that was said, maybe by somebody that you followed or that you trusted and that you should have been able to trust, but they broke that trust and something was said or something was done that has made you a slave in some way to that person or a slave to that incident, a slave to that thing that has happened and you just wish that you could be free of it. That person, that thing, that experience That possession, whatever it is, has ended up ruling over you. It has not only let you down, it has ended up up ruling you. I want you to know this morning that Jesus' heart for you is that you would be free. Paul says this in his letter to the Galatians. It was for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you find that you're still trapped to these things, we would love to pray with you after the service this morning. If you're in a life group, your life group leaders would love to pray with you. If you're not in a life group, get in a life group so that you can talk about these things and people can serve you this way because God's heart for you is not that you would be enslaved. It's not that you would be trapped by these things. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. So Jesus is there, he's looking at this crowd of people, and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that phrase is a little bit peculiar for us, because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in Ottawa, we're, we're urbanites. I mean, even, even uh, people in this room that, that listen to country music, ugh, still, might not get the sheep without a shepherd kind of reference. All right? Even those of us that drive half-ton trucks, we still drive it through the Starbucks drive through right? And most of them have never had mud on them at any time. So this reference, sheep without a shepherd, for most of us, it gets lost on us. What's, what's being talked about here? A shepherd is a different type of leader. A shepherd is a different type of leader because unlike all of these other leaders that I've mentioned, whether they be people or institutions or possessions, a shepherd is active on behalf of his or her sheep. That's what a shepherd does. So for the sheep, when the sheep are awake, the shepherd is looking around, scanning the horizon. Is a wolf going to come in and attack the flock? What's, uh, is, there, is, there, is there a ledge that some of the sheep might fall off if they're not walking carefully? He's active or she is active on their behalf when they're awake. What about when they're asleep? Well, the shepherd is still active on their ha- behalf, keeping watch over them making sure that there's, again, no attack going to come from the outside. And not just attacks from the outside, attacks from the inside. Keeping an eye on the flock, making sure that sheep aren't kind of going at each other and hurting each other. A shepherd is a different type of leader because a shepherd is proactive on behalf of the flock. And friends, this is so Jesus. This is why this language, this is why Jesus, one of the ways that he describes himself in John's gospel is the good shepherd. This is so who he is. He is active on our behalf. Christians in the room here this morning, do you know that this morning that Jesus is active on your behalf, that this morning he is for you? And we can hear the gospel being preached. We can remember the cross of Jesus Christ, which we will remember towards the end of the service today as we enjoy communion together. But we can think that Jesus did that for us, and then he just stopped everything. Everything was done. And we take Jesus' comment of it is finished to think that Jesus has just stopped doing everything. That's not what Jesus was referring to. Jesus' comment of it is finished is referring to the, the, the work that had to be done to win our salvation. The perfect sacrifice that had to be made. But it did not mean that Jesus just went up to the right hand of the Father and he's just been chilling on a bed ever since and doing nothing. Jesus still is active for us. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. 
in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priest, referring to Old Testament priests, and we can kind of think of Old Testament priests like shepherds as well, interceding on behalf of the people of Israel, uh, God's chosen nation at that time, working on their behalf. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So those priests of the Old Testament, there were, had to be loads of them because every however many years, 70, 80, 90 years, priests would pass away. That would happen. So new priests would have to come through. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. And listen to this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What do you live for? A lot of people in the city right now are living for the sins right now. In some way, I'm not living for them fully, but there's a, big, there's a part of me that's living for them on Tuesday night, okay? I want these guys to win. Desperately, I want them to win. So maybe it's sports, or maybe, maybe you live for your career, or, or, or other examples that we could give. What does Jesus live for? Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Jesus still is going to the Father on your behalf, interceding for you, going to God the Father and saying, this person, this young man, this young woman, this whoever it might be, is in me. So, Father, hear their prayer and give them what they're asking for. And and even Jesus, in our imperfect praying, is making our prayers perfect. He's still active on our behalf. That's why he's the good shepherd. Because even when we're resting, even in our times, if you're here as, as someone who prays, even when you struggle for words, Jesus still in those moments and the Holy Spirit of God are working on your behalf, making your prayers perfect taking your petitions to God and interceding for you. He truly is the good shepherd. Good shepherds, and we see this in Mark 6, in this text that we're looking at this morning, good shepherds and good leaders are motivated by compassion. Jesus sees this crowd of thousands, and his heart is moved because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Friends, good leaders are motivated by compassion. Bad leaders are motivated by conceit, by pride. Be very careful following a leader who's motivated by pride, by his or her own profile, because you very well may get caught up in that leader's downfall. But if you, whether it be in church or in the workplace or anywhere else in the city, see a leader who is motivated by compassion, who wants the good of the people that they're serving, whether it be in a church or their employees or whatever other example... That's a leader worth following, somebody moved by compassion because they are going to be active for those people that they are wanting to serve. So imagine the setting. Jesus, he's already feeling exhausted because of the pace of ministry, the constant demands, and the crowd following him. I mentioned that his cousin had recently been put to death, so the emotional exhaustion of what he's walking. But still, he tells the crowd to sit. Out of his compassion, he tells this crowd of thousands to sit, and he begins to teach them. He begins to teach this crowd. And he's there, remember, this is many years ago. He's there with thousands of people around him. He doesn't have a microphone. He doesn't have lights and a big stage and a sound system and all of these other things that we might have today with a crowd of thousands. He's there, and he's teaching this crowd of thousands. And he's teaching them for quite a long time. And as the day goes along, the disciples are noticing a potential problem coming their way because you have this crowd of people, most of whom have run a great distance to be with Jesus, to hear him teach And Jesus has been teaching them out of this compassion that he had on them. 
But the disciples recognize that as the day goes on and as, and as nightfall is coming, that there's going to be the potential for a hungry mob to be around them. They've not all come there with their pack lunches. And this is like the first ever Christian festival that has ever happened. If you, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a Christian festival, but there's, like, there's food trucks. You can get a greasy burger. If it's, if it's a proper Christian festival, you should be able to buy quiche somewhere, I suspect, because you can't gather Christians without quiche. And you can probably go find somewhere where you can buy some fridge magnets that have psalms and, and, and clouds and harps printed on them and this sort of thing. You get all that stuff at Christian festivals today, but at this first ever Christian festival, there's none of that. There's just a crowd, Jesus, and the disciples. And the disciples are looking at the situation, and they're saying, there's a potential problem coming. There are thousands of people here, and they are going to be hungry. So they say to Jesus, Jesus, could you send them into the surrounding villages so that they can get some food? And Jesus replies like this. He says, you give them something to eat. What? (laughs) You give them something to eat. So... The disciples replied, oh, sure, should we, just, should we just dig into our pockets and pull out 200 denarii? What they were saying was, should we just dig into our pockets and pull out 40 grand of money and just go somewhere and buy some bread, rock down to Loblaws and go, I'd like to buy $40,000 worth of bread, please, this morning and take it back to this little gathering happening over here. They replied to Jesus with sarcasm. Jesus, what are you talking about? We have this book for our three-year-old daughter. It's called Sleepy Jesus. And it's got these little manger scenes where Jesus is asleep in this manger and the cows are amazingly not drooling on Jesus or anything. They're just kind of looking at him with, with awe and wonder. And I, as I was preparing this, I kind of thought the title of another book could be Silly Jesus. Surely the disciples are thinking, Silly Jesus? What are you thinking? What do you want us to do? We don't have cash like that. How would we be able to provide food for all of these people? Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. The disciples' faith from their missions trip that they were on, where they saw the power of Jesus working through them in incredible ways. Not only that, but the time that they had spent with Jesus before that, seeing Jesus heal the sick, healing a paralytic, casting demons out of people. Incredible, incredible works. Peter, kind of the the, the lead spokesman of the disciples, Peter's own mother-in-law was healed by Jesus. Still, Peter is one of the disciples who's there, is still one of the guys that's kind of looking at this going, Jesus, what are you talking about? Us give them something. How could we possibly make that? How is that going to happen right now? Their faith had evaporated. In crunch time, it was not there. They had come back from this trip thinking that they had kind of achieved this new level of spirituality, and in reality, Jesus knew that there was still a lot more teaching that had to be done to them about faith and about trusting him. Staggering how quickly the disciples forgot who they were with, isn't it? Matt was preaching last week, and he was talking about some earlier verses where Jesus marvels at some other people's lack of faith. Well, in the verses we're looking at this morning, the lack of faith that the disciples have, we can marvel at that a little bit. Really? Really, only a few, maybe hours later or days later, already you have forgotten. But let's not be too quick to judge the disciples here, should we? Because you know what? We're like this ourselves. As I'm reading this story about the disciples, as, I, as I'm kind of going through this, the more I'm getting to know these guys in Mark's gospel, the more I'm seeing myself in them. I don't know if you've found the same. This is our story as, as, as Christians, as people that say that we trust in God. We do and then we don't. We do and then we don't. This has been the story of God's people for many, many years. God says this to his people in Numbers, even 
hundreds of years before what happened in Mark happened, God said this to Moses. He said, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Why? In spite of all of the signs that I have done among them. In spite of all of the signs. In spite of all of the faithfulness that I have shown them. How long will they not trust me? How long will they not believe me? And friends, this is us. There's a pastor and a writer in the UK named Phil Moore. He says this. He says, God is calling us. God is calling you to trust him again and again. And we think, oh, I've learned that lesson, but we really haven't. We're a stubborn people. We marvel at the faithfulness of God and then walk straight into unfaithfulness. We trust him and then we don't trust him. But he is kind. He is gracious. He works with us, serves us, and provides for us even when we think he isn't. Thank God for Jesus. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are in Jesus, even those moments of faithlessness, Jesus' perfect faith covers you. It does not separate you from the love of God. There's no reason for you this morning to feel guilt or condemnation or anything of the sort. Because if you're in Christ, his perfect record in every area, including his faith, his trusting of the Father, covers you in your moments and my moments, of which I have many, where I don't trust that God will provide, where I don't believe that God is good, where I don't believe that he has my best interest in heart. But I'm in Christ. And praise God I'm in Christ. And his blood covers me, his sacrifice covers me in those moments. And Jesus, God the Father, sees me through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and he sees you through his perfect son, Jesus Christ, if you are in him. So then we get to the meal. How are these people going to be served? Well, we learn from John chapter 6 that there's a little boy who's there, and this little boy has five loaves of bread and two small fish, and he offers them up, and the disciples kind of dismiss it initially, but Jesus takes this bread, these five loaves, and these two small fish, and he lifts it up towards heaven, and he blesses the food. He thanks his Father in heaven for this food. He gets the crowd to get into smaller groups of maybe 100 here and 200 there and 50 there. And the disciples are then asked to start distributing this food. And they walk over, and at first it's five loaves of bread and two small fish, but it's multiplying right in front of them. Somehow this, these five loaves and these two fish, it's not five loaves and two fish. It's, it's ten loaves and four fish and it keeps going and going and going and going and they're taking it out and they're, they're walking it over. They walk it over to a group of a hundred people and distribute it among a hundred and they think, this is crazy. What's going on? And they go back and by the time they go back, there's even more there. And then they take another lot and they go out to another group. They find a group of 200 gathered and they take it and they deliver it around the 200 and then they come back and there's even more still and they do this until everybody has eaten and everybody is full even to the point where there are 12 baskets of leftover food and 12 disciples. Oh, Jesus is like the king of object lessons. Like he's being really, really obvious here. He's saying, guys, you can trust me not only for the things that you need, but there are going to be times when I'm going to give you more than you need. I'm going to give you a surplus. I'm going to just just shower generosity onto you, providing you with more than you need. And suddenly these disciples who are going, how can we possibly feed these people are then the 12 men who are left holding baskets of leftover food 
Friends, this is our God. There's a lot of talk, and we talk about this as a church. There's a lot of talk about God providing your needs, and he does that. Believe me, he does do that. But my experience and my wife's experience has been that many times God actually provides us with more than we need. He provides us with so much that we're actually able to give away. Not in every case. Sometimes it's meant just to what we need, whether it's to the dollar or the amount of food or clothing or, or, or whatever of the sort. But there are other times, our experience has been more often than not, that he gives us more than we need so that we're able to live out his generosity to, uh, to others around us, to the city around us. As we wrap up this morning, I want us to try to put our minds in the position of two different types of people that would have seen this happening that day. Firstly, the young boy. Again, we know about the young boy from John chapter 6, this young boy that comes up and he offers these five loaves of bread and these two fish. And the disciples kind of dismiss it. In John 6 verse 9, they say this, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? They're essentially saying, I mean, we don't know whether the boy overheard that, but imagine if he did. And imagine being the boy. Imagine hearing the disciples say, what are they for so many? They're essentially saying, thanks, kid. Like, thanks. But look around you. What do you think this is going to do? Imagine being that boy, hearing that. And he's just, he's, that's what he's got. He's coming. He's offered everything that he has. Jesus, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but there's a need for food. This is what I have here. Have it all. Scripture talks about faith like a child. Friends, this is faith like a child. Thousands of people. Do you not think there was a wealthy businessman or a wealthy businesswoman in that crowd? Do you not think there was somebody who said, hey, I own a bakery. Give me a couple hours. I'll go and and I'll bring everything back that I have. But it's a child. It's a little boy that comes and offers everything that he has. But the disciples dismiss it. Maybe you have had moments in your life, maybe even in church, maybe even in this church, where you've come and you've brought what you have and somebody has made a comment to you where you've just thought, you know what, yeah, you're right. It's worthless. It's worthless. When we hand the offering around, you think, man, I've got, I've got five bucks in my pocket. But five, like in Ottawa, the salaries that people are on in this city, like five bucks, who cares? Who cares? Or maybe a gift or an ability that you have where you think, no, there's, there's no use of that. That's not, that's not worth anything. Maybe outside the church that's worth something, but no, not in here. Again, maybe somebody's made a comment to you at some stage where you've thought that your contribution is just meaningless. I want you to know it's not. It's absolutely not. Jesus takes that contribution from that boy. Five loaves and two fish. Uh, Maybe enough food for, I don't know, how to push the disciples. I mean, they wouldn't have been filled, but they might have been, they might have had enough to kind of carry them over for, for a little bit. He takes enough food for, say, 10 or 12 people, and he feeds thousands with what this boy gives. Imagine the excitement for this boy. Imagine him watching this, seeing these five loaves of bread and two fish multiplying, the disciples carrying it out to crowd after crowd. after. And what's going through his head? I gave that. <laughs> I gave that. Look at what Jesus is doing with it. Look at what's happening. Look at all these people that are being fed. He's looking around the crowd and people are going, oh, I'm so full. And this little boy's going, yeah, you're welcome. I gave it. No problem at all because Jesus multiplied it. Friend, no matter what you have, have an attitude of bringing it before the God of the universe and saying, God, this might be little and maybe somebody just said to me that this is worthless, but I don't care. 
it's yours. Do with it what you will, and God will take that, and he will multiply it, and it will amaze you. It might not be as instant as what the little boy saw. It might be, but it might be years later down the road. But I promise you, it's a promise in his word, he will multiply it, and it will go far beyond anything you could ever imagine. The second group, the disciples. The disciples themselves. They've just come back from this mission trip. They're exhausted, but they're on fire for God, but they lose faith so quickly. They're focused on the size of their need, aren't they? They're looking at the crowd around them, and they're focused on the size of their need rather than the size of their God. Let's strive to be a church that focuses on the size of our God more than the size of our need. God has spoken to us about being a church-starting church. You know, we're a new church in Ottawa ourselves, probably 50 people in the room, maybe a little less, I'm not sure. You think, how is God going to do that? He's going to do it because he's the God that does this. And he can take 50 people in Ottawa and multiply it and send out to other parts of the city, send out to other parts of the nation because that's what he does. The very first command ever given in Scripture, be fruitful and multiply. God is the God of multiplication. If you're here this morning and you just hear yourself hearing that, and maybe it's the church planting thing, you know, you're thinking, that, for me, that's not it. I, I'm, I'm not having to trust God for that. Rich, that's something you need to trust God for. For me, it's this. For me, it's, it's the job. For me, it's just the food after the service today. It's the health. It's, it's, it's what the doctor said to me last week. How can I trust him with that? How do I know that he's for me in that? My encouragement to you this morning is to lean into him and ask him to help you. Don't think that if I just sing the words right and if I just read enough verses in the Bible, then all of these things will fall into place. Ask him to help you. Is an area that you're lacking faith in? Admit it to God. God, I'm struggling to trust you in this. Please, will you help me? And I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit that God will draw near to you and he will help you. And even if you're not feeling it, even if you're struggling for the words, remember, Jesus is for you. He's interceding on your behalf. Let that encourage you greatly.